experimenting with doing a couple podcasts on the road, and uh, I'm here with Andy. Andy, did you listen to my last podcast? I may have. Was it the yeah. Kevin and Kevin show? That, no, that was the most recent solo one where I actually referenced you. No, okay, no, this because, is flattering. Because I, I, I'm certain I butchered your last name. So uh, tell me what is the correct way to pronounce your last name? Well, even that's a loaded question because it's it, we learned it's not correct, but we say Bano. Okay, uh, all so right. So if, if uh, we were getting calls at dinner time growing up, we knew that it was a sales call if they just completely butchered the name. But then <laughs> we learned what, uh, somebody was doing some family tree research, and it turns out it's supposed to be more like Benow. But oh, really? All right. No Benows. Pronounce it Benow. We say Beno. Beno. So, all right. Ben. All right. Yes. It's the, it's the Americanized version <laughs> of it. Right? Exactly. They added vowels. It was the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. How can we complicate an already complicated name? Yeah. Well, that that's interesting because then I, I completely missed your name on like two different tribes. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, you know, I was saying it's funny because uh, uh, with, you know, my name being what it is, um, you know, I grew up like basically everybody butchering my name in every possible way. <laughs> I heard like every version of Klinkenberg, you know, and every nickname of it that you can imagine. And so I was always like really sensitive to how to pronounce people's names. Anyway, so take a listen, and um, and and I think I think you'll actually enjoy that one because I was kind of riffing off of a bit of our uh, Substack back and forth, uh, and uh, and and I think that'll be up your up your alley. So uh, let's start first a little bit. Make sure people know who you are uh, and and what you're doing at CNU. What's your uh, where do you live? What's your professional background? Um, my background is. Follow the Messy City podcast wherever it leads me. <laughs> All right. We're in for a good plug right at the front. <laughs> uh, so the the short, I'm always looking for the tweetable version of a thing. So for my background, what I'm doing right now is I am a storyteller for hire. My background is 25 years in infrastructure in some way or another. Mm-hmm. So uh, I tell people that my parents helped me buy a degree in civil engineering, and then I didn't civil engineer anything. <laughs> I've been, I, or I started in transportation, which was another thing that I should not have started because as a teenage boy, I was not going to do anything remotely close to what my dad did. My dad worked for the Federal Transit Administration. Oh, okay. So I would tell myself, well, he's in transit. I'm uh-huh. in transportation. It's different. Yeah. Uh, and then the older I got working in, working for consultants over the years in various forms of transportation work, the Venn diagram of our professional networks, my dad and I kept just overlapping to the point where it's the nearest circle. <laughs> so I, uh, my work was always a blend of um, transportation planning, traffic engineering, that kind of thing, depending on who you work for, it goes by different labels, but I'm a people watcher. So, and I grew up in Northern Virginia. Mm-hmm. Where we understand traffic, <laughs> everybody's stuck in traffic. Yeah, um, the Beltway's always expanding, um, but a mixture of intersection analysis and just big picture people movement. How, where are people coming from? Where are they headed? Mm-hmm. And um, friends of mine who are in this industry will scratch their heads sometimes, like, "Well, how do you end up with new urbanists? And how do you end up with this, these other groups uh, that are very designy? And I'm not, a, I'm not designing anything. Uh, or how do you end up with these more philosophical groups? Uh, it all makes sense to me because, like, if I look over my shoulder mm-hmm. at my career path, um, 
I'm just always asking, what do I want to do when I grow up? If I grow up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm looking in transportation terms, I'm looking for that intersection of things that I enjoy doing and things that there is a market for and things that I am decent at. Um, or if you were to take a, uh, an architectural vertical view of it, mm -hmm. it would be like talent stacking or that, mm -hmm. that kind of concept. Like what are a handful of things that I like and I'm, I'm decent at because nobody's ever going to be the best at everything or any particular thing. Mm -hmm. Even Michael Jordan only had a tight window, right? Yeah. Um, but then, and then how can you use that to stand out? So for me, it's over the years, it morphed always in transportation and playing, like figuring out how do people move around? Where are we coming from going to? And what, what's the point of it? Is the point uh, to funnel us through in cars for a particular point in time? Or is the point really, I've got to get to work or I've got to get to this conference or I got to get to this coffee shop because then maybe you're in a car, but maybe you're not. It's, it's a very different way of looking at the world. Um, so that's, that's the kind of work that I, that I was doing, just asking those questions. And then I discovered through trying to pursue contracts with, you know, on behalf of firms, business development kind of stuff, that the art of persuasion is something that we who were taught engineering or architecture or construction or planning, we didn't learn that stuff. Mm -hmm. So as kids, we were always trying to persuade each other, anybody with any background, right? Like, mm -hmm. Uh, can Kevin come out and play? <laughs> nah, he's doing homework. Now, can he do homework later? You know what I mean? Like everything is persuasion later. And then at some point, through a combination of school and work, it's sort of uh, massaged out of us or sometimes battered out of sure. us. Like, no, 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 this is, grownups are supposed to be conformists. So everything's more like conformity rather than just uh, bouncing ideas around and persuading each other to do things. And so when it comes to, or when it came to think very practical things like, our business needs more business. How, do, how does our firm or team look any different than the other firms or teams? Yeah. And the truth was, I, I was asking friends on these selection panels, they don't look any different. <laughs> <laughs> like everybody puts up the same banners and say, uh, best place to work, uh, top ENR firm, you know, what you list your, your uh, fact sheet. And on the panel, they don't really care about that stuff. They're, like, they're, you're there for a purpose in their mind. The, pan the selection panel is thinking, we have funding to figure out this corridor through our city or our county, and we need some experts to help us think through this and then design it. And the consulting teams would come in just think, thinking about themselves rather than the problem they were there to mm, solve. Yeah, so sure. um, not that they're coming in haughty, like I'm the best, but that's how they, everything came across. And so. I just started, I happened to like propaganda and advertising, and it was fascinating to me that hmm. I, who didn't like the fact, didn't like learning that I was not logical uh, or rational, um, I was learning, oh, we are very easily persuaded in some ways, not about everything, but like, why do you choose this brand over this brand? It's the exact same price. Why uh, Prego over Ragu? Maybe there's a little bit of a flavor difference, but not a lot. Best Buy, Circuit City, you know, uh, Ford, Chevy, well, in any product category. And so I would, I was reading more and more about um, not only the history of public relations and propaganda, but also the techniques that advertisers and copywriters would use. Um, and then I would, I would, if something registered, and there was always something registering, mm -hmm. like, oh, 
yeah, that does seem right. That's I have done. I could, now that I read that, yes, I have fallen into that. I would try it in presentations or uh, proposals, and it would work. Mm-hmm. Now, it could wow. Work in the sense like I would ask later, hey, what was that? Uh, why did our team stand out? And it wasn't about me as an individual. It was, oh, yeah, your team, you had that story arc that aligned with our project. So just basic things like having our theme and our our pitch aligned to exactly what we knew their pain points were. Mm-hmm. And so the last few years, um, that's been my sweet spot. It's helping people, small businesses, organizations, nonprofits, um, technology companies that are in infrastructure or mobility in some way, figure out what what are we trying to say here? Who's our audience? Mm-hmm. What's the form that we deliver these things in? And my bias is, I'm here at Congress for New Urbanism, mm-hmm. I want happy, healthy communities. I want mm-hmm. people to be able, if they want to walk or ride a bike to get around, mm-hmm. uh, I want that. That's my extreme bias. So yeah, yeah. that's uh, that's the long-winded answer to your short <laughs> question. That's that? okay. Hey, it's funny. You make me, uh, like as a parent of small children, you make me feel a little bit bad because now I realize like I've got a five-year-old who is exactly what you say she's a she is a negotiator extreme (laughs) it's just it's unbelievable we think oh my god she's going to be a lawyer or something because the way she already just negotiates with us and and bargains it's incredible uh and uh, and I feel like we're probably trying to beat that out of her too much which maybe we shouldn't do Um, channel that yeah my my boys are older now they're 17 and 19 but uh it's it doesn't go away. Yeah. So, uh, so that's interesting. So that you, uh, basically you work on your own to, to essentially help other people with messaging. Would that be like a shorter way to to say it? Yes. In a sense, although I don't like to be alone, Kevin. So I always (laughs) want to work with teams and other people, but yes, I, so I freelance, so I will, I will work with a nonprofit or a small business, you know, those types of Uh people I was listing, but yeah, they help, help people get, they figure out their messaging and it's different purposes. So sometimes it's ghostwriting. Sometimes yeah. um, a technology company needs to figure out how do we how do we pitch our stuff? Like this is this is going to be transformative for a transit agency. They have old timey technology. They, City Hall has no idea where the buses are. Yeah. This tech will help. And they start talking in ones and zeros. And the average person's like, I don't understand what right. they're saying. They sound very intelligent, but I don't get it. Um, so helping them get to the point. What is it you do? Who are the buyers? And then how do we get that um, message to them? That and that's like just the organizations. And a lot of the work, part one reason why I found so much joy in that kind of work was through public engagement projects in regular infrastructure meetings because those were a circus. I mean, and, and I'm fortunate in that I got thrown into public meetings from the very start as an intern while I was still in college um, because they would it was cheap labor for the corporates, right? You've got a sure. big corridor study. We need bodies to carry around the boards and the maps and stuff to get to the middle school on a Tuesday <laughs> night when no one's going to show up anyway yeah. and uh, and put everything up, set up all the tripods. Um, so I I loved that because it was a hang. Like you just, mm-hmm. Even if only a handful of people come, I, I would just ask questions. And I didn't, I didn't know anything about urban design or what was mm-hmm. good or what was mm-hmm. good or bad about traffic analysis or um, or reasonable or unreasonable. I was just asking lots of questions. And then uh, what I would find was oh, these sometimes people coming to these meetings seem to know way more about this than I do. And I work for this company. 
And then other times, these people have no idea what this project could do or is going to do to their property sometimes. Mm-hmm. To, like you have, you have no idea. You're asking about street trees. They're going to take your backyard to widen the road. <laughs> <laughs> but that, so that it's different deliveries uh, with helping people storytelling. It's, it can be kind of the biz, help a business get more business, but then also helping figure out, help, helping people see how our silly human brains work mm-hmm. and then work with it. Like I, I'm not, I don't pretend I can change people how human beings are wired, mm-hmm. but it's helped me a ton. And I know it's helped others a ton to just think, all right, if this is what we know from psychology and neuroscience, mm-hmm. the stuff that we never studied, but if we yeah. just, if we learn a little bit of that and apply it to our technical work, man, it makes things so much better. It's so much, makes conversations with normies yeah. <laughs> so much yeah. easier. You ever read um, "Why We Buy" Paco Underhill's book at all? No, but it sounds one? like it sounds like something right up my alley. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a it's a classic, very interesting book, uh, and uh, it, it's something that uh, I know impacted uh, retailers a lot. But the, he and others have studied uh, for years, you know, almost like the science of uh, how easy it is to manipulate people uh, from a retailing from a purchasing standpoint uh, really interesting uh, and I think um, I think you have one or two other books that were along those lines but uh, there there you know there was a I remember years ago my first um, introduction to all that was Bob Gibbs used to uh, the retailing expert um, in the urbanism used to present some of his work and he would talk about how you know little subtle things like if you if you walk into a store and there's a table like right in the middle there's like basically they can prove there's like about like an 80 percent chance that you're going to go to the right you know yeah and, and if there's like a certain color painted on the back wall of the store there's like a certain percentage like you know likelihood that you're going to walk all the way to the back of the store it's just it's it's really fascinating stuff but um it, it's kind of along those lines it, it is funny to dive into you know how um our monkey brains are, are still pretty easily manipulated. I, yeah, I, I was. That, it's funny you said, and maybe maybe some of this content was coming from that book, and I didn't didn't even realize it. But um, I wrote recently about a, an element of that, and just thinking the uh, the grocery store as a Sim City kind of thing. Like planners yeah. talk all about Sim City and just mm-hmm. computer games that are like that city building. Grocery stores, like you said. They figured that stuff out because it matters, right? If, yeah. Especially the bigger the chain, yeah. the more that stuff matters because they want to be able to copy paste across the country or the region that they're operating in. And so all those, all the kind of people movement things where they nudge behavior, yeah. it's not, I mean, it, in, it includes where product, specific product placement, like the type of product in which if it's up high or down low, like mm-hmm. all those kinds of things come into play too. And then, of course, labels on packaging and, you know, which, why you're more inclined to choose one box yeah. versus another. But, but just the people movement thing is fascinating to me. Yeah. Like, why? Planners <laughs> or, or <laughs> urban designers. Like, read some of that, the research and books that are out about uh, retail design and especially, I, I think, grocery because there's so many different options within. Yeah. Like, you might just be going there for the dairy stuff. Or you might just be going for this other, or you might be doing the full-on, full-cart experience. Yeah. And yeah, if tra- traffic calming is a great connection, I yeah. think, with, with that. Because if you're walking down a packed condiments aisle, 
you're going very slowly, whether you're carrying a basket or pushing a cart, yeah. you're watching and expecting anybody to back up into you at any time. You're trying to make eye contact. It's just all that you're, you're and then you add yeah. kids into the mix. It's Back a whole on. other circus, right? Well, it's like, you know, I always think Costco is just, you know, they're brilliant. Yes. yes. Absolutely yes. brilliant. And it's like, I, I go into Costco and try and usually have like two or three things I want to get. And I can't leave the store without spending 200 bucks, <laughs> you know. And if I have my kids with me, forget it, because they're going to sample every food up and down the aisle. I mean, they are absolutely you know, really, really brilliant about how they merchandise their store and, and everything. It reminds me, it's kind of, it's funny you mentioned grocery stores because back when I was in architecture school uh, a million years ago, uh, I took uh, I took some classes in the urban planning department, which like uh, at University of Kansas, the urban planning department was a graduate level um, program that was actually technically separate from architecture. But we would take classes. I, I took some classes in it because I, I was interested in planning. And uh, I had one professor, uh, really interesting guy that I like and learned a lot from. But like he was a he was a all out Marxist. Like it was like I took it was like a Marxist urban planning course that I took. It was fascinating. But he actually wrote a book about grocery stores, uh, which uh, I, I don't think I ever actually got all the way through. But it was he dove into a lot of the details that you're talking about, like specifically analyzing, you know, how things are placed where they are and mm -hmm. why they aren't set up that way. And there is incredible science behind all of it. Uh, yeah. I, and I, where I find value in that is like with the aisles. I mean, you mentioned Costco, like compared to the tight aisle with people bumping into you potentially versus a wide open Costco aisle where you get there at a certain time of day and there's no one there. And so you can, like your kid can run and jump onto the cart and, you know, zoom through like a go-kart, right? Yeah. You act differently when the when the aisle is wide. So traffic engineers and road designers, because again, they didn't learn about uh, cognition and how just behavior science. Like they don't, yeah. and, and I'm not blaming them. I'm one of them. I studied yeah. civil engineering. It was like a little bit of soil mechanics, a little bit of structures, all these different things. You don't, you don't learn these things. And I find those types of real world connections useful because road designers and traffic engineers will swear up and down that design does not influence behavior. They're like, I'm just following <laughs> the green book or whatever guy, right? Yeah, yeah. And they say, this is, this is how it is. It's not as though, I don't understand why people are speeding. We were, we're going to put a giant sign out on the street that says, please slow down or drive like the kids live here. <laughs> and, and you tell them, it's because of the design. Your yeah. design influences bad behavior. No, uh he goes back to the kid persuasion. No, uh yeah. But if you connect, you, you just talk through the grocery store. Well, they would. Well, of course, yeah, of course. If it's narrow, I'm going to walk slower. Well, yeah. how is that any different right. than than uh, out on your street? Clear zone, sight distance, all of the things about designing the built environment. There are other things in life where you could make those connections and go, oh, okay, I understand how design influences behavior. But, um, but you got, I think it's, it's helpful to find those things and then talk to them. You, you might not, if, I mean, we all know it's hard to persuade uh, any of us if for any particular thing. If we've, once we really, we think we really know something, it mm -hmm. gets harder and harder to change our mind about that thing, of course. Um, but just connecting the dots, like, grocery aisle width versus your lane width. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, 10 feet does make a big difference from 12 and 13 feet yeah. and even nine feet. Like, and why is that? Why mm -hmm. do we slow down? Mm -hmm. um, and then of course it's 
very different conversations from there. Like, is it is it a good idea to slow down? Is yeah. this a, an right. environment where we want things slowed down and calm? Yeah. I remember working on a project years ago uh, that I will I will not name now in case anybody's listening that could be offended. But we had it was a new community and we had a particular street um, that we were designing that um, uh, connected to a community college campus. This was in a suburban area, and um, we had this really what I thought was just unbelievable back and forth with the city engineer about uh, the design. Uh, of this street that led to the community college, we want we wanted to the, from a design perspective, urban design perspective, both sides of the street were to be flanked by like townhouses, and so this is this is a walkable community we were designing, and we were hoping there would be townhouses or apartments along along both sides of the street. We wanted it to be just a really comfortable street. It, it actually was designed with like a center median, like a landscape median. And the engineers really fought us to make the street wider and wider than uh, we really wanted it to be. Uh, and they wanted the lanes. I think we had originally programmed them as like you know ten foot lanes, and they wanted like twelve, thirteen feet minimum. And the rationale was, well, there's all these young people who go go to the community college campus, and they're terrible drivers. So we need to make the road wider for them. <laughs> I was like. Doesn't that mean you're just actually encouraging them to be even worse drivers and like speed through this area? I mean, I, I, it's awful and it's normal. I I say I, one of my favorite places to say this is Twitter because it can be so inflammatory over there, um, but also my happy place. <laughs> uh, never ever ever let the fire department design streets and intersections, and that gets that rubs people the wrong way constantly because it, it's one of those social things where you think, well, the fire department, teachers, like those are, those are groups of people you're never supposed to criticize ever or else. Don't ever let the fire department design streets because they do the same thing that you just described. They're like, well, we got bigger trucks this year. Yeah. Um, and we're going to need a bigger intersection. Yeah. Uh, we are going to need, yeah, we, yeah, we recommend or we support the public works department in their push to add a, another left turn lane here. And this intersection should be bigger. And the, they're losing, they lose sight of the problem that the bigger, if we do these things, if we design around your trucks and design around your trucks going faster to respond to 911 calls, yeah. there will be more 911 calls. Yeah. It's as simple I, as that. I know. It's a, <clears throat> it's a frustrating discussion we've had. You know, for a long time. Um, so, uh, Andy, you have this uh, great Substack called Urbanism Speakeasy. Uh, how long have you been doing this? You've been doing it for quite a while, if I remember right. Yeah, and uh, actually, CNU, um, I, I'm constantly giving CNU credit for for me connecting dots around it. It, it started as a podcast in or just after West Palm Beach, whatever CNU mm, that was. God, that was a while ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I went, 10-ish years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not looking at the internet, even though we have it handy, <laughs> uh, but a while ago. And it, it came out of, um, I guess it was around 2012, um, just having, at, there are a lot of uh, kind of open group sessions at CNU, or it used to be anyway, um, where you would kind of vote with your feet around different topics and, and what are people interested in talking. So there was, at one point, there was a table of us that were, we were just talking about podcasts that we liked. And that ended up coming, I mean, it started with comedy podcasts and then it ended up with kind of business and marketing podcasts. And then, well, we're at Congress for New Urbanism or 
who's listening to any new urbanism podcast? And we're, it was crickets. Like we, we couldn't come up with stuff. And then beyond that, it was, um, okay, here are a couple. Well, do you like them? Well, it, uh, it was like this polite kind of yeah. um, backing away. And so I thought, I didn't just think, I said it out loud. We should make a podcast. And, and so then it was like, yeah, yeah. And so the kind of that rally of, yeah, we should do this. And, um, and I said, no, really, we should do this. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll start. So um, I followed up over the next couple of weeks with a handful of people because I, my idea for mine was I don't, want, uh, I don't want it to just be my voice, but I wanted to use this. Part of what drew me to Congressman Urbanism was just the battle of ideas was constant, and I love that. That was something that was missing from other organizations, just that two or three very close friends could be violent with their ideas, mm-hmm. very normal in every other aspect mm-hmm. of life, but just for, but for the same goal that was healthy communities, happy, happy places, um, vibrant places. Uh, and so with that same kind of North Star or mission, they could come at topics from different points of view and argue what, what are the best paths to get there. It was fantastic. And so I wanted that for the podcast to be able to think, think through these things. Again, I hadn't studied them. I hadn't learned them, but I wanted to find interesting people and talk with them mm-hmm. and, uh, and ask them questions like, um, how did you first start? Maybe it was tactical urbanism, uh, crosswalks, you know, that kind of thing. The gorilla gardener in Los Angeles was a great story. Mm, yeah. Um, and if other people, it turned out that we're busy with other things. So I ended up turning it into an interview show. So rather than a, a co-host with another CMU person, and then ended up being me, uh, just doing interviews. And then um, over the years, that I, there were a couple of times where I had to just put it on pause. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, work gets busy when mm-hmm. whether you're working corporate or uh, or solo. And then recently, I brought it back in writing form because I write a ton. But you mm-hmm. are telling the or you can tell the words don't stop coming out of my face. But then also <laughs> I, I write a lot too. And so I was I just figured I'll I'll keep this writing, keep the brand of Urbanism Speakeasy, uh, but I want to bring back the podcast. And I love Substack. Um, I mean, you and mm-hmm. I could probably sound like a Substack commercial because yeah. it, it's sort of, it can function sort of as our Amazon, where you, yeah. whether you're delivering something in uh, short form, long form, uh, a book, podcast, video, all those things, just right there together. It's, it's so easy. And then being able to um, have access to people through a mailing list yeah. is so, so important. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Substack's been a godsend, and I just, you know, I switched my blog over earlier this year, and before I started this podcast, and everything, and, and I've been looking at it for a while, and obviously been a, a reader, and follow a lot of people on there, but uh, it's actually, it's pretty amazing to me how quickly it's become, you know, a thing, it's not like there weren't other sites that did something right. similar, but Substack really um, uh, parlayed it, I think part of it is, it's super easy to use, uh, has a very simple, clean format, uh, and it allows people, it allows creators to monetize their work much, much more easily than, mm-hmm. than anything else. So um, that's been great. It's, yeah, it's intuitive. It's easy. I think, um, and this was one thing that over the years I've, I've constantly encouraged other people, even <clears> if they don't like writing. And yeah. I, I hated English class. <laughs> I I liked, if there was a class in class class clowniness. I wanted, I would want that. Like what, what's the writing and speaking associated with that? But through all my coursework in college, my absolute favorite class was public speaking, which was just like yeah. a half credit. I mean, it was a barely a class, but I loved it. 
And because, and also, I wasn't thinking ahead to this is real world of all the things of all the classes. And I had a fan, I took it at a community college. The teacher was fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, just because his his goal, <coughs> excuse me, his goal, um, was to help us be public speakers mm -hmm. rather than I'm some tenured professor. Oh, they stuck me with this lame class. Yeah. And, and it was fantastic. And so whether you think of yourself as a writer or not, um, I'm, I constantly say, write, publish, repeat, which I stole mm -hmm. from somebody else who published a book mm -hmm. with that title. But it's so helpful. Also, talk. Yeah. <laughs> repeat. Uh, it's so helpful to um, understand your own work better, yeah. understand it from, just from a practical business point of view. What is it my clients are really trying to do? Or what is it my project is trying to do? Uh, when you, so when you write your own scope of work, like something as very basic, business basic as that, just writing regularly helps with that. It also helps when you're giving a presentation to planning commission. You're trying to, you're working with a developer on a project and you're trying to pitch this idea of converting an old mansion to a duplex or a fourplex. Just having written about these things gets you to the point where Anecdotes and aller allergies, <laughs> and allergies just start, start to uh, kind of ooze out of you when you least expect it. And so years ago when I had my own domain, it, I mean, I still do, but mm -hmm. I didn't mind that barrier entry to set it up, have right. hosting, all that kind of stuff, um, have my own blog over there. Uh, but something like that, that's a kind of thing that a lot of people it's a self-selection process, right? So a lot of architects, designers, planners, these types, our, our people here at CNU, they're not gonna do that, most yeah. of them. But something like a Substack, it's easy to say, to put the peer pressure on, on a friend and be like, look, all you gotta do, log in. Mm -hmm. You don't even have to publish to the world. Don't tell, you don't even have to tell people that, that you have it. Right. Just do this, set up an account, and just start writing. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's it's just it's so good. Whether you share it with anybody ever, or it's just for your own kind of journaling benefit, uh, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it really. And I think you're right. I mean, it really does help you clarify just you know uh, your own thoughts and just get better. You know, and get better about uh, talking to other people, especially talking to people outside you know our tiny little world uh, about the issues that we care about. Um, so. Uh, so you publish pretty regularly then you're like what three or two or three four times a week you're putting something out generally yes although you asked me uh asked me last week and i would have said i would have been holding my breath because i went about a week without uh, publishing um so this is an area where i have to get i have to get more disciplined in thinking in advance because one of the advantages of, of substack is being able to schedule posts yeah um and i need to get ahead of my own curve so that I have things lined up in the queue for a more regular publishing mm -hmm. uh, schedule. Because from an email marketing point of view, this long, long time studied science of there mm -hmm. are ways to figure out and analyze when people are most likely to open your emails. Mm -hmm. And so it's one, most important to have an email list. Two, <laughs> that people are interested enough to read it and yeah. act on it sometimes. And so um, that aspect, I, I I am a work in progress on that. Part of the reason though I publish a lot, and, and this is, I don't think there's any rule that, that your schedule should be once a week or three times a week or whatever. Um, but I, the words, again, the words don't stop. So I might, for me, I might as well. And 
it's all related in some way to, I mean, I, I'd say the tagline is, is something like uh, simple truths about city planning, mm -hmm. some, something along those lines. Mm -hmm. um, and so th for me, the schedule is more like not forcing the issue of I need to publish three times a week or four times a week, but it's something's hitting the news like parking reform or zoning reform. There's something that's catching people's attention. I'll test an idea or a phrase or something, a provocative angle on Twitter and see how that works or doesn't work. And then use that as the basis, kind of the seed. And then that will grow into something that I'll write the email list because right. I'm just assuming one even on Twitter that stuff moves so fast yeah. people aren't going to see it I'm, I'm yeah. assuming no one will see it even mm -hmm. if a lot of people statistically see it like my readers mm -hmm. so I can bring that kind of topic it's not a it's not just oh you already said that one time yeah but you can also you can go deeper a little bit um yeah so the schedule for me is uh it it probably it probably will be about three or four times a week this month though this month will definitely be busier because Yesterday, what day are we? Yes, yesterday was day one of crowdfunding campaign for documentary that I'm putting out, and I've got oh, cool. 30 days um, for that sucker. What's what's the documentary? Kevin, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> the so one thing that came out of the idea book is uh, from several years ago was the premise of a doctor. People were sending me articles that got me thinking along these lines. But mm -hmm. a doctor prescribes to a senior citizen, you should ride a bicycle once a week and you should walk once a day. Mm -hmm. so I'm prescribing you this. Mm -hmm. Basically, active living. Mm -hmm. That patient, that senior citizen, will walk outside, look around at the streets, and they can't fill their prescription. Why? So if you were to, if you were to blend Aaron Brockovich supersize me and blues brothers like in my <laughs> mind that is the quest that i'm on i know a lot of the answers of why things happen because with you know background and mm -hmm. planning and knowing policy and that sort of thing land use planning um but i've been learning a ton about the direct connections between mental health especially and the built environment and so what i want to do with this documentary is shine a giant spotlight on Burnett, the tentative title is white collar epidemic because you've got these two at, they don't think of themselves as at-war white-collar groups, but you've got the medical profession that says, here's what's good for the human body and the human mind, these things. Then you've got the infrastructure profession. They go, cool story, bro. You don't, <laughs> you don't get that. Yeah. We're designing stuff that does not fit us as human beings. Mm -hmm. And so or you know, a, a simple way of saying it is that streets and buildings are by design bad for us and i don't like that mm -hmm. and so as i was the more i looked into that just coming from the idea book like writing about it um i i was trying to find documentaries about it because i'm a sucker for documentaries i mean i'll even i'll treat documentaries like podcasts i'll, I'll listen to it at <laughs> 1.5 speed yeah <laughs> but um but there's nothing out there and so i thought all right this is it is another one of those things i like to say i'll say things out loud to help make it happen so I said it out loud enough times that uh, and enough people are like, yeah, you should make that. Like, all right, all right, I'm going to make that. So I I did um, some pre-interviews with about 20 people, which is way too many, but I, I did this on purpose. Just I wanted to get a bunch of different perspectives from the medical side and the infrastructure and planning and design side of 
just how bad it is and things can get better in the end. I mean, I'm an eternal optimist, but um, I'm also right. Like things can get better in the mm-hmm. end. Yeah. If you all through recorded history, we see for all kinds of things, um, there's no reason to be uh, a cynic about the built environment. It, so what, what I want to do is, um, I, what I'm doing the crowdfunding for is so that I can make this thing and then take it, I think it lends itself, especially for those of us like CNU types and advocacy groups, a roadshow type thing where people need to see this and then talk about it. Like, so whether it's a couple of us on a panel or it's a local, it's, it's a bike walk, a local bike walk group and a local, a, a couple of psychologists or neuroscientists or that kind of thing, depending on the group, you know, maybe we're in a university town, maybe we're in a, a small town in the middle of the country. Um, but these issues, we have no idea how bad it is. Like yeah. you and I know as designers, we know some of the things like traffic crashes on wide streets. You, you know, you add lanes, you widen out the road, you're gonna have more crashes. So and it's, that's physical health, of course, like injuries and, and death uh, in that sense. But for me anyway, that was basically the limit of my thought on the connection between health and infrastructure. But it's so much worse. So things like in anxiety and depression and even just your ability to come up with ideas, your creativity, um, your memory. Uh, dementia is one of the things in the U.S. that is regularly brought up as why, why haven't we moved the needle in the medical mm-hmm. community on figuring this stuff out? Yeah. And, and then you learn, or you will learn after this documentary, hmm. that the spaces around us, the way we interact with the environment has a direct connection on things like dementia. Like, hmm. well, what if? What if we built things a little bit differently? Um, what if we act on that knowledge? Uh, so these are things that, on the one hand, they can seem overwhelming and impossible. Like, how, how do you rebuild the entire United States? It, I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting once you know, once you see a thing is causing these problems, then block by block, property by property, you know, uh, locality by locality who has their own uh, zoning code and other things, you can make these changes locally. And to me, that's exciting and invigorating. Like, you don't have to wait for a certain yeah. person to be president or your part, you know, if you're playing politics, it doesn't matter if your team is in charge. This is just, if we can focus on the health aspect, uh, none of the other stuff matters. Yeah. So how does somebody who's never produced a documentary go about producing a documentary? You just do it. You just do it. Uh, so I've made shorts before. Uh, I've, I've made, um, especially mockumentaries. Uh-huh. Uh, I was talking about this at one of the CNU dinners that um, the very first one came out of a dare uh, because I was, after having worked for so many years on public infrastructure projects, I was just role playing as the different people who I've been these people. So like the traffic engineer, uh, the the traffic modeler, um, the land use planner, the politician, the urban planning professor, just all these types. So I was I was doing this one person show kind of thing, and then and so this the dare was um, Josh Paget, who's uh, I don't know if he'll even remember this if he hears it, but he was starting the New Urbanism Film Festival, and he goes, "My I've I've got a deadline coming up. You should submit." I'm like, "Submit one. You you should do that." You should submit that. So 
I, over a couple, it was like three days away. So over one or two nights, I wrote a script and filmed myself just in the basement with very simple interviewing myself dressed slightly differently. I was like five or six different people. And it was just, a, it was called walk, don't walk. And it was all about walkability. It was a very tight focus on, on the inability to walk. Uh, at the time, I don't remember how old my, my older boy was, but he was, he was the star who, uh, at the very beginning of it. But anyway, that, that was my jump into it. I, but I'm not bashful about these things. And I'm, I'm definitely a, a um, ready, fire, aim kind mm -hmm. of person. Yeah. But this is, I'm not treating this like, um, this needs to be the most polished thing you've ever seen. Mm -hmm. But we all have access to cameras. We all, I mean, even just a basic DSLR, mm -hmm. there are so many things you can do with it. Mm -hmm. uh, we've all, we've all probably made project videos of some kind, mm -hmm. um, maybe not 20 years ago, but certainly in the last few years. Um, it's just, so I look at it slightly differently. If somebody says, why would you do this? I would say, well, why wouldn't I? Mm -hmm. If, yeah. if I have, that's not to say everybody should do, should, there's everybody's to-do list should all look the same um but even if it's just a two minute it, not not this documentary but if a person is just filming two minutes of how fast people drive down their neighborhood street past the school um and take that to your city council like they've got the open the open mic night at city councils or planning commissions where like sign your name you get three minutes just show that video just yeah. let 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 it sink in so people are just watching two minutes straight of just zoom, zoom, yeah. zoom on a street that we know could be calmed. And so for me on, with the documentary, it's, just, it's that kind of thing. I mean, I, I like, um, it, it's not as, as bare bones as just me and a smartphone. Um, I have a, a lean team to put this together, which is why I got to do the, the crowdfunding. But, um, <laughs> but I, I don't see it as a, I don't see it as a big lift. I see it as, why is it taking me this long to make it happen if it's yeah. if been in the idea book for, for well i mean it's incredible you think about like the explosion of youtube and and the ability for people to just make and upload their own videos right and, and uh, you know i like to bug some of my architectural planning colleagues to talk about it like if you want reach you know that's that's where you reach people uh, you know whether you like social media or not whether you like youtube or not um, there are uh, people, um, we, we had some reference the other day at one of the, the strong count session about social media. I mean, there's like not just bikes, which has like a million followers on YouTube, which is incredible. Yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, that, that person, um, has far more reach than any of us do coming to our little conferences, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so the power of video is incredible. And uh, so I salute you for trying it. I think that's really cool. Um, I, I have, like, years ago, I did a couple of videos when uh, that I uh, paid you know, somebody to help me do. It's really funny. I still have them up, you know, on my YouTube channel, which I almost never do anything with. Uh, and I still get people who like refer to those videos, you know. And one of them was about a street design issue where I actually compared a design of a five-lane street, uh, the same five-lane street in a more urban condition and a at a little bit more suburban condition and just how, and even though they were both technically five lanes, how different the experiences were. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was like four or five minutes long. Um, but I always felt like, God, I, yeah, I wanted to do like hundreds of those and, and it would be cool to have more people doing videos like that. I think it just, it, 
it clearly reaches more people than, than anything else that, that we do. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it goes all the way back to what we were talking about at the beginning, just the very simple, uh, very simple storytelling. It, we have a tendency of overcomplicating everything. Yeah. And like this, so I, one thing that I keep going back to with this particular documentary is it, in talking to 20 different people to, to feature some of their stories, um, I realized this is, in talking to 20 people, I'm, I'm coming up with notes for 50 different films. <laughs> Obviously, I can't. So not only can I not make 50 different films right now, uh, I've got to gotta put a fence around this. Yeah. And what's the focus? And so coming back to something very simple like, doctor prescribes this, it's good for you. And this other group of experts that controls our behavior is saying, no, you mm -hmm. cannot have what's good for you. Mm -hmm. I don't like that. I'm not willing to sit with that. But that, like, you have that kind of focus. It's just like what you described. The same thing is true with a, it's a road diet, or you're talking about setback for property, or uh, About Here is another YouTube channel that's got some great stuff. Like, why are front yard businesses illegal? Mm -hmm. That's great. Like, I'll, I'm not the only one that will mm -hmm. sit and watch 15 minutes of walking through, yeah, why are front yard businesses <laughs> illegal? Yeah. You, you get a glimpse of what is being held back from you, yeah. and it fires you up. Um, my goal with my work is I don't want to ever leave people with the, I'm mad, and now I'm going to get on Reddit and tear apart the internet because I'm so <laughs> mad. Yeah. I want people to get fired up and then do something good. Yeah. Like, they, all right, now what? Yeah. So, or the, the yes and from um, improv kind of thing. Like, right. you... Yes, you're fired up. This is a problem. It's going to get worse. It will keep getting worse unless you do something. And great news, so much of this stuff is fixable at the local level. Exactly. Exactly. So, like, what's the next, like, simple thing, task that you could undertake to, to help with that? Uh, actually, Strong House has been great in that regard and really kind of hammering home that message about, like, finding the next simple thing that, that you can do. And, and that, you know, and that ties to, you know, something I know you've written about a lot is, is you, you talk a lot just about messaging and really simplifying the messaging around all these issues and, and how much we just, not just overcomplicate how we think about things, but just how we talk about them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wonder if you could talk just for a minute about that. I've talked a little bit about when I had Nathan Norris on about, you know, how, how bad a lot of us are in this world in terms of messaging generally. Mm -hmm. And um, come up with you know slogans and, and complicated ways of talking about things. But why don't you take yeah. a minute and talk about that? I so this is this is like someone someone in recovery talking about this. So it, every, <laughs> <laughs> or uh, as Miley Cyrus would say, uh, they say it's the journey to the messy city most people remember most. <laughs> <laughs> um. I'm My, Miley, you're welcome. To <laughs> the um, I mean, we extroverts think everything we say is important, and so we fill spaces with words. We that's that's our, that's one of our things, and so um, it's part of why so many presentations are awful. It's it, it took me a while to figure that out because um, I, I loved giving presentations. At first, I couldn't figure out why does nobody want to volunteer at these conferences to give presentations early in my career. And so I, was, I would give them a, like project overviews. I'm no expert, and I'm, I'm 
not delivering it in a timid way, but just knowing my place. I'm no one in this room. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, ex I'm almost delivering a presentation. Like I'm asking for, not for validation, but like, can you help me? Did I do, was this part right? This access management thing, what about this? Um, but I would, I would overcomplicate by putting so much information into these presentations that I myself would lose sight of the point of my own presentation. <laughs> <laughs> so God, that sounds so familiar. I would so. have to look back and say, what was the title of, of this presentation? And then I'd realize, oh, the title was boring as can be. Uh, <laughs> Access management regulations in Virginia, 2004, whatever. It, instead of, what's the point of this talk? What do I want? What's one thing that people should leave the room thinking about? Um, it's, it's just, it's again, how the, the human brain works. And so either we can, we technical types, um, we can pretend that we'll change how humans function, or we can go with it and say, oh, okay, now understanding how the human brain works, how can I adapt to how the human brain works? Um, one, of the, one of the people that I'm talking to that's gonna, definitely gonna be part of the documentary, uh, her name's Angela, she, she was telling me about some of her backstory as a, female combat veteran and the struggles in coming back to normal society where her family and friends did not understand why she was struggling so much with PTSD. She didn't look wounded and she felt like, I forget how she worded it, maybe like a shell of a, of a person, but she felt awful and miserable and possibly suicidal. And she was talking about her background in some of these ways. And then while, while she was telling me her backstory, um, she goes, I don't know if you've ever heard of new urbanism, but somebody recommended to me that I needed to, she'd been, sorry, I'm backing up all over myself. Uh, she had tried all the normal prescription uh, responses. So they, the doctors couldn't help her find the right cocktail of medicines. Right. And so she felt like I'm at the end. I don't know, nothing's working. And I, I'm miserable and I'm scared for what I'll do to myself. And somebody said, you aren't, you're so isolated. You're not talking to anybody. You're not seeing anyone. You feel so miserable, but you're just shut, you've shut yourself in. You need to walk and see somebody just daily or weekly. Mm -hmm. And she was introduced to some town or village. I don't I, I plug them if I remember the name, but it was a new urbanism development. And she cut herself off and she goes, New urbanism saved my life. Like, whoa, stop everything. This is one, like, this is yeah. a whole other movie. So, like, that kind of focus, um, starting from that point, all right, new urbanism saved my life. Yeah. How, is that hyperbole? What, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. Because mm -hmm. if you're, so if you're giving a three-minute talk or, you know, a little uh, six or seven-minute Pechacucha kind of thing, or you're standing in front of planning commission or city council, um, or whatever it is, a project interview for a contract. If you have something like that, uh, that I mean, maybe you don't want to make the selection panel cry at, at an interview, but there are <laughs> a lot of personal stories like that woman saying, new urbanism saved my life. Then like going from there, it's like, how? You, it's, it's almost like Hitchcock's suspense because uh, yeah. you, you start with something shocking and then you kind of work your way through and then maybe there's another shocking point like, and then this happened and then you kind of work your way through. 
But all of that goes back to simplify, simplify, simplify. What is the point? Because none of us care. There's no point. Like um, one thing that's interesting, I think it's interesting is every couple of years, we'll see those statistics about our attention span. And is it, is it at goldfish level of seven seconds or nine seconds? And so from a marketing point of view, you have this much time to capture somebody. And I, I found myself when I would first start seeing those years ago, like, oh yeah, I got to hook them. I got to hook them. And there's truth to that. There are things that you absolutely have to hook someone right away. So a YouTube thumbnail that has certain types of font will capture somebody in a way, a, a commercial for something will capture people. So there is that element. But another thing that's also true is if the storyline is engaging or the content is engaging, even if it's not just personal story after personal story, people will absolutely tune in. Like Joe Rogan's podcast, Biggest in the World, is three hours of one-on-one -on -one conversations. Like right. people will listen if something is compelling. Right. And so the same can be true for, for new urbanists. If we're, whether we're talking to our, to just each other, we're at an event, we're, we're delivering, we're making a, a documentary, like whatever it is, if we, if we can focus on the simple, why are we doing this? What is the point? Mm -hmm. Then it's not like you have to get in and out in 30 seconds or six minutes. You, there, there's a lot of there there, but it, it does go back to what you said about, you've got to have that the essence of it, the, or like I say, the, what's the tweetable version? Yeah. Is there a tweetable version of a yeah. thing? Uh, if not, you got problems. You got to refine that. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's great advice. Uh, I feel the pain in a lot of ways because I, I recognize what you're saying with my own presentations and, you know, the, the difficulty there is in just boiling things down to like one point because that is really the reality. Most people attending even a even most really smart people are going to watch a presentation. They're thinking they're probably going to take one thing away from it, mm -hmm. maybe two, you know, uh, but it's it's not much. Uh, one last topic here. I know it looks like people might be starting to stream in the room here soon, but uh, I you can help me with this one. I have to lead a presentation tomorrow about AI uh, and the impact of AI on uh, just our cities, our professions. You had an interesting uh, little post about it recently that was much more. Uh, optimistic than what I think you often read in the press uh, about AI. So I wonder if you want to talk, tell me what I need to know, how I need to prepare for this tomorrow. I, I am, I am sorry that I'm not going to be in that presentation. I would love to see it. Uh, so I'm looking forward to, um, I'm sure you will write about it later and I will, and I'll read what you write. Um, I'm not an AI expert, but I'm, I'm all, I, I like technology. Um, and I, I like it as a tool, just like car as mobility, like, it's one tool. It can be used, water. Water can be used to give life or take it away. Like you can drown in, in too much water. Right. Um, AI and large language models like ChatGPT, it's that, to me, it's that same kind of thing. It's a tool. And so I've been, I've been reading a lot about and listening to very long form podcast interviews with people who, technologists, who are going on for 30 minutes, 90 minutes about different aspects of artificial intelligence and in, in different applications. So for some it's software, for others it's mobility, for others, just all kinds of applications. Um, and I just keep coming back to, we're not gonna stop. It, it's the mm -hmm. genie in the bottle kind of situation. Like yeah. it's not going back in. We're not gonna right. stop that type of, now that we have this ability, we, I'm including myself, <laughs> as if I can do anything with artificial intelligence. Um, 
but there are certainly ways to apply this uh, to the work that we do. So even the things that are now available to consumers, like the ChatGPT, I've been testing it out as a research assistant. And sometimes it's it's like, I say research assistant and I'm visualizing a, uh, a college student or a high school student because it will often pull very good work that you would never have found just Googling. References to something like, uh, find me, 10 projects that fit the following criteria. Uh, and, you know, you list what you're looking for, you tell it your goal, and then you have a, you basically have a conversation like, this is what I'm looking for. And it will come up, at three of the 10 will be these off the wall things you thought, How, huh, that's weird. And then you read it and you go, oh, that does connect to what I was thinking. Just like if you had a high school kid run to the, like, the server and find folders, they'll inevitably come back with something that you go, how on earth did they come up with that? Yeah. And yet, there's, there's something you can use. I mean, not always. There's a lot right. of that. And then sometimes, frankly, their answers are just flat out wrong. Yeah. And, and you get that too. So my take on that, like the stuff that's accessible to us now, is how might we use it? So I, I'm a big fan of what if questions. So what if I use it in this way? Um, how are photographers using it? How are journalists using it? How, and then also, how are people not using it well? Um, so to me, all these things, all these things are interesting. I definitely don't see see this as um, self-driving terminators coming through and, and yeah. taking over because I don't know. I just I just don't. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I, I think that's fascinating. I think there's something there I can use, and uh, I mean that's my brief experience. I'm certainly no expert on it as well, uh, but my brief experience with a lot of it is at least where, where the technology is now. It will obviously change in advance. But where a lot of it is now is it's sort of beginning to replace low-level tasks. First order things, so mm -hmm. like first drafts. Uh, and I think if people think of it that way right now, is there's a lot that it produces that's very imperfect and everything else. But if you're like, but that's a first draft and it did it in five seconds. Right. And uh, you know what it comes out, the, the people that criticize, or the, the best and harshest critiques of what something like a large language model does looks like corporate websites. Yes. <laughs> I will not name several of former employers, but if you look at the stuff that gets generated, it's it's junk writing. And when yeah. you look at it like, oh, this is why ChatGPT is junk. Yeah, that is junk. Also, look at this major corporation's mission page and about <laughs> page and their blog. It's awful. Yeah. Uh, so maybe now that you've identified what crappy writing looks like, yeah. go back to your website do a little tweaking and figure out your messaging. Yeah. Fig like figure out why am I here? What do we What do we do here? How Why should any client care about us? How do we talk about the work that we do? Yeah, that's great. Um, we didn't get to talk much about biking. Well, maybe we'll have to do this again at, at some point. Um, I know you're you're a big cycling advocate, um, but I do want to wrap it uh, before the room gets too crowded because I think we're about to be overwhelmed. But um, so. I always like to wrap to asking people if they have a favorite sort of uh, place that, that fits a messy city description, you know, a neighborhood, a city, anything at all that uh, that feels like it, it fits that vibe. What's uh, what comes to mind for you? Two, the two immediately come to mind. One is so I'm I'm based in Richmond, Virginia, and mm -hmm. one neighborhood is Shaco Bottom, which is dirty and grimy, and I love it. Uh, it, so it is literally a mess down there. It's, um, I just, I don't know. Rich, I have, Richmond's got incredible neighborhoods. 
Yes, yes. all over the place. It's so that is a particular neighborhood that I adore. Um, but then also Charlotte. We're here in Charlotte, North Carolina, and for very different reasons. It's not grimy, but I was talking to somebody yesterday about this, how, again, things can get better in the end. There's so much physical space already. Um, there, there are plenty of parking lots to do something incredible with. Uh, there's, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of overbuilt roads through downtown. We all know that. We walk around uh, seeing four lanes, one-way coming out of things like that. But but there's potential there. And so, and already you're seeing things. That's, I think that's part of why seeing you here in Charlotte. Like, there's things are happening already in the last several years. And it's a new, it's new-ish building mixed with old building, which mm -hmm. is fine. I mean, mm -hmm. that's classic Jane Jacobs kind of thing. Right. Mix right. it up a little bit. Um, don't put all your stock in just new buildings. Right. Um, so yeah, that's my uh, my long-winded messiness. Well, and there's obviously you know Charlotte has come a long ways too, uh, and it, the downtown has changed uh, remarkably in the last twenty years. Uh, so there's it's it's really a very new city in a lot of ways, uh, at least uh, as we experience it today. And I think a lot of people maybe are unfamiliar with that notion, but uh, it was it was not a terribly large city you know fifty years ago, mm -hmm. uh, but it boomed, and as a result they. They've seen just a flood of growth uh, in town, out of town, uh, suburbs, and, and they have all the sort of things that every city has, but they've had a real focus on their downtown and urbanizing it, and, and that's some, some really nice things. So. Yeah. All right, Andy. Thanks for doing this. Thanks Appreciate for having it. me. For all, all right. the information on the documentary, um, you should go to urbanismspeakeasy.com. Urbanismspeakeasy.com, and you're also on Substack, so, and Twitter. It'll redirect right there. Urbanismspeakeasy.com will take you right to Substack. Okay. What is what's your Twitter? It's my last name, Bano. Okay. Yeah. All right. Great.